is week two of our summer series called Roots. Speaking today is Pastor Dan McCandless. So I'm amazed by people who can see things that most of us, most of us do not see. You know, artists who can look at a blank canvas and see the image they want to paint. I mean, all I see is a blank canvas, but they look at it, they can see the image, and then they paint this beautiful landscape or scene that rivals the, the real thing. It's awesome. I'm, I'm amazed by artists who can do that. Or the craftsmen who can look at a block of wood or, or stone or clay and create a figure that only they can see in their head. The rest of us, we can't see it. We can't see it until they chisel it or mold it into being. You know, uh, some people can see, the, see what the rest of us cannot. Like all the professionals on HGTV, my favorite network. I'm in awe of these people. They can see what we, most of us cannot. Whether it's designing a space or flipping a house or taking a fixer-upper fixer and making it into a couple's dream home, it's all dependent on someone who's able to see beyond the obvious, see beyond circumstances, what's in front of them, and, and see what most of us do not. See a finished product that's awesome and beautiful. I'm going to ask you, how do the Property Brothers do it? Right? I'm in awe of these guys. You know, great golfers, they can see the shot they want to hit before they hit it. Great golfers can see the line and trajectory of their shot going to their intended target. They see it as they stand over the ball before they ever take a swing. In fact, you, you know, you can classify all golfers based on what they see when they stand over the ball. Great golfers, when they stand over the ball, they can see their shot in great detail going towards their intended target. Good golfers, on the other hand, may not be able to see the shot they want to hit. They can see their target, but they're not exactly sure how it's going to get there. Hackers, you know what hackers see? They see the hazards between them and their target. The sand traps and the trees and the water hazards, inevitably where they'll end up. You know why? Because it's what they see. See, executing a golf shot is almost always dependent primarily on what you see. Well, the ability to see, the ability to see what others do not is an awesome thing. And Jesus gives us the ability to see what others do not. He gives it to his followers, those who truly want to follow him. Jesus gives his followers the ability to see people and circumstances and opportunities that others do not see. He gives us the ability to see as he sees it. And this ability to see like Jesus sees is what changed my life. I want you to turn with me in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 in your Bibles or your device, whatever you're using. Mark chapter 10, short passage of scripture that rocked my world and changed my life. It was really where I'd say I got my spiritual roots to serve God. So while you're turning to this passage in Mark 10, I'm going to set the context for you real quickly. It's toward the end of Jesus' life. He's on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem for Passover. He's going to be the sacrificial Passover lamb, the once and for all sacrifice for all mankind's sin. And Jesus, his disciples, and a whole band of followers are headed south into Jerusalem so Jesus can fulfill what he came to accomplish. That is to suffer and die, the once and for all payment for sin. All sin would be paid for by Jesus' death on the cross, and sin would no longer separate man from God. 
All who put their faith in Jesus would then be forgiven of their sin, saved from the penalty of their sin, and they're put back in right relationship with God. This is the gospel. This is the good news we get to share with people, that Jesus paid the price we could not. He suffered and died as the Passover lamb, so our sin would be taken away. I remind you that Jesus did not come to expose our sin. He came to remove our sin. He went to the cross to remove sin from us so we could be with God for eternity. It's awesome news. It's what compels us to, to tell everybody and anybody about the good news of Jesus. Well, on this road trip, as Jesus is making his way to make this ultimate sacrifice, Jesus tells his disciples that just in a matter of days, he's going to be betrayed and condemned and put to death. This was not going to be your normal Passover celebration. He predicted he would rise from the dead as well, but like other times in Scripture, it's, the disciples didn't get it. They could not comprehend what Jesus was talking about, about being uh, condemned and dying and then rising again. They just quite didn't get it. They couldn't see it. Well, this is where we pick up the action. Mark, who's the author of this account, this gospel, tells two stories back-to-back -to towards the end of Mark 10. And he... And he he shares the action that took place while this road trip to Jerusalem is taking place. That's the context that we read this morning. So I'll pick up the reading in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. It says, Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Well, I read that, and I just told you he was, he was going to make a sacrifice, and, and he told them he was going to be betrayed and condemned and, and then put to death. And these guys say, hey, we want you to do for us something. We want you to do something for us. It sounds so cold to me. It sounds so selfish to me. It sounds so self-absorbed that these brothers would ask Jesus this question after Jesus basically had poured his heart out. He, he told them everything was going to happen. In fact, if... What we didn't read is verse 34, right before we start this account. This is what Jesus says of himself. He says, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Talking about himself. The very next verse, verse 35, it says, Then James and John came to him and said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. No sympathy, no, you know, no, God, gee, Jesus, is there anything we can do? Or we're with you, or we've got your back. None of that. Just a selfish, inappropriate request by two brothers who wanted Jesus to bless them, to bless their plans, to bless their agenda. They wanted positions of power and prestige and honor before these terrible events take place. Maybe to induce them to ask Jesus, because it sounds like he was going to be going away or be gone soon, we better get our request in now. The brothers' request centers around them and their plan and their agenda. It's like, Jesus, we have this great idea we got these great plans. We want you to bless it. We want, it. we want you to agree with it, bless it, and rubber stamp it. Because it's a good idea. It involves the three of us. That was their request. Well, Jesus, not exactly knowing what they were asking, he, he wants to qualify their request. And he says in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? They said, we want you to do whatever we ask. He says, well, what do you want me to do for you? Sidebar, this is a pretty amazing question. When you consider that the Son of God the Savior of the world, the Creator of the universe, says to two selfish brothers, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, it's backwards, isn't it? I mean, shouldn't they be saying that to Jesus after hearing what he was going to go through? Don't you think two disciples should be saying to Jesus, Jesus, what should we do for you? But instead, 
Jesus is the one who poses in front of these brothers and says, what do you want me to do for you? You know why? Because our Savior is a servant. That's why. So he says, what do you want me to do for you? And then the the brothers give a rather blunt reply. They say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. These brothers wanted to be great in God's kingdom, the coming kingdom. They wanted to occupy positions of greatness alongside Jesus. See, they desire greatness, thinking that it comes with position or rank or honor or authority. It's what they know. It's what they've seen. They don't know any other definition of greatness. So it really isn't an out-of-line question, really. I think the timing is inappropriate. But the question, understandable. Before you're too hard on the brothers being selfish and self-absorbed and arrogant, you know, a lot of us have made this exact same request of Jesus. It sounds something like this. Jesus, give me some success and I will honor you. Let me win the lottery and I'll bless the church, right? It's God, give me something that I'm good at. Give me some success where I'll flourish and I'll be a bold witness for you. Many of us have made that request. Here's the reality. I know I did. That's the same request I made way back when to God. Self-centered, self-absorbed, absolutely. When I read it, I hate to think of it, but it's the exact same kind of request I made to God. Here, Here was me. I was living my dream. My wife and I were living our dream. We were living in Hawaii. I was playing golf for a living. We didn't have a care in the world. We were comfortable, content, loving our life. I mean, who wouldn't? It was all about us. All about us. Enjoying everything. And that's when I made my self-centered request to God. And I said, God, you continue to bless us, and I will be a bold witness for you. You continue to, to give us everything we want, and I'll be, I'll be a star for you. God, I will, I'll do whatever you ask me to do from my comfortable position here. Just ask, and I'll do it, as long as I don't have to move. God, I'll be your right-hand man. That's basically what I said. Sound familiar? I look back and it sounds a lot like James and John, those selfish, self-absorbed, power-seeking brothers. That was my offer. Well, Jesus realizes he's going to need to do some core value teaching with these brothers and the other disciples. Here's why. Because the other disciples are angry with the two brothers for their power play. So Jesus says, man, I'm, I'm going away in about a week or so. I'm going to the cross. i got to do some, some core value teaching with the boys here so they get it straight, so they understand what greatness in the kingdom's all about. So, so Jesus sits them down and begins, begins to teach them, help them see a redefinition of greatness. Help, helps them see what it is to be great in kingdom values rather than the world's values. We pick up the reading in verse 42. Jesus sits his disciples down and says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Hey, this is the core of the core of Jesus' teaching. He speaks directly to James and John and their desire for greatness. But the reality is these verses speak as powerfully to me as they do to these power-hungry brothers. Jesus says, you want to be great? You become the servant of all. 
You want to be first? You become the slave to everyone. Greatness is measured by serving. Greatness is found in serving others. He said that to his disciples back then and today. Jesus redefined greatness for his disciples, saying that greatness in the kingdom is not about position. It's not about prestige. It's not about power. Greatness is about serving. It's about serving others, becoming the slave of all. Which brings us to our second story in this account in Mark chapter 10. I'll continue reading Mark chapter 10, looking in verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. I told you, Jesus and his disciples are headed to Jerusalem for Passover. They're leaving Jericho. They're now less than 15 miles away from from Jerusalem. So close that Jesus can taste it about the events that are about to take place. And during this time, a blind beggar heard Jesus was passing by and shouts to get Jesus' attention. Jesus, son of David! Have mercy on me. Well, he may have been blind, but he was not stupid. Because he calls out to Jesus. He uses the term son of David. It's a messianic title. He's trying to get the Savior's attention by saying, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me. He's appealing to Jesus and his role as Messiah, the healer, the compassionate one, to see a blind beggar like himself. Well, verse 48 says that many of them, many of the disciples rebuked this blind man and told him to be quiet. That's a nice way of saying, they said, shut up, old man. Shut up. Don't bother the teacher. He's got important business in Jerusalem. He's got more important things to do than listen to the likes of you. You keep your mouth shut. To the surprise of everyone, Jesus stops and says, go get him. We'll pick up the reading in verse 49. It says, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man. They said, hey, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. Notice that Jesus stops for the one that the crowd was telling to shut up. He stops for the one of no position, no prestige, no power, a person of no significance. And yet the Savior stops. The blind man jumps to his feet, hurries over to Jesus. Look what Jesus says to the blind man. Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? Sound familiar? Exact same question that Jesus posed to James and John just a couple verses earlier. See, whether you're a power-hungry brother looking for a position of honor or a blind beggar who's hoping for a miracle from the Messiah, Jesus' question is still the same. What do you want me to do for you? You know why? You know why he asked that question of disciples and beggars? 
Because it's the language of a servant. Because Jesus, our servant king, he sees value and worth in this blind beggar. While others dismissed him and ignored him and told him to shut up, Jesus stopped to love on and serve the least valued person on the road that day. Jesus stopped because this Savior is a servant, because he sees value and worth in everyone, because he put it there. Jesus designed and created that man with value and worth. He created you and me with value and worth. He sees it. He sees what most do not see. So Jesus says to this blind man, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man replies, obviously, I want to see. It's the obvious response if you physically cannot see. But I'm here to tell you, it's the only appropriate response for anyone who desires to follow Jesus, sighted or blind. I want to see. That's the only response that's reasonable to Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? I know it's the response that changed my life. Because there was a time when I said to Jesus, I want to see. I want to see what you see. I want to see people like you see them. I want to see circumstances and opportunities through your eyes, Jesus. That's what I said to him. Make no mistake, it is an admission that you're blind. That you're blind to the value and worth in people around you. That you're blind to the needs all around you. It, that you're blind to how God wants to use you. You're blinded by your comfort. You're blinded because you think, you think greatness is power and position and prestige. And you're blind. It's also an admission that you need the Savior to help you see people and circumstances and opportunities through new eyes, through his eyes, because your, your definition of greatness is all off. It's an admission. It's really, it's really a form of surrender. You tell Jesus, I want to see, it's a form of surrender. You're saying, I can't see. I need your eyes. I need you to help me redefine greatness. I need, I need to surrender my thinking, my plans, my agenda, because I want to see what you see. So you no longer lean on your own understanding. You let him direct your paths, and you begin to see what Jesus sees. You'll start to see people like Jesus does. You'll see value and worth in people you formerly passed over. You'll actually see people with compassion and recognize that people are like harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're dying for a touch from the Savior. You'll begin to see with those kind of eyes. That's how Jesus sees them, and you can too. It's what Jesus gives to those who, who tell him that they want to see. He'll give it to you. You'll see serving opportunities as opportunities for greatness, ripe with, with purpose, ripe with significance, whether it's setting up chairs or parking cars or holding babies or teaching classes or mentoring brothers at Pivot House or Time for a Change or the Rescue Mission or digging holes in the, in the, at the Missions House. It doesn't matter. You see serving opportunities as opportunities for greatness because that's how Jesus sees them. You'll see that serving opportunities are not something that you have to do. It's something you get to do. It's not a have to. It's you get to. You'll start to see people and opportunities through the eyes of Jesus. So my wife and I were on vacation just a couple weeks ago. 
And we are so full of God because he's been so gracious to us. He was pouring into us. And we were so ripe. In fact, we remember just talking with each other, saying, we want to go bless people. We were so full. We, we were, we were you know, overflowing. And so we said, man, we just want to see people like Jesus sees. We want to walk into circumstances with the love of Christ. And we walked into Taco Bell. At my request, of course. It was, uh, it was late afternoon, so it was way after the lunch crowd and too early for the dinner crowd. And we walk in, and in fact, there's only one other couple, I think, in the, in the corner. And we walk in, and uh, we're so full, and we, this girl, maybe late 20s, is behind the counter. She takes care of us. She's efficient. She's very professional. And, and we're thinking, you know what? We just got to pour into this kid because there's not much else going on here. It's real quiet. And um, I try to make her laugh. Nothing. Right? I, I'm, we're trying to engage her, and she's, we're getting a little smile out of her. Here's what we found. Here's what we could see. You could see that she hadn't laughed in a while. You could see that there was some pain in her countenance, some loneliness, probably some disappointment. Probably not a whole lot of people had seen her as significant or purposeful in recent days or maybe years. And so we ordered our food, but we, we purposed to say we are going to God, we want to see this girl the way you see her. So we take our food and begin to eat it, and, and uh, I could not get my mind off of her. I kept looking back. There's still no one in the store, but you know what? She's washing tables. She's serving the few customers that did come in. She's going in the back, I think, ostensibly to prepare for the dinner rush. You could tell she was all over the place. She was a good worker, really good worker. You could see that. She was professional when she dealt with us. She had to bring us some food out to us. She served us, was pleasant took care of a few other needs. You could see she took her job really seriously. She was not the manager. The manager was in the back, but she was taking care of us well. And I'm sitting there, and all I'm doing is thinking of her, saying, man, God, what is it with her? What does she need? And I hear God say to me, as I'm looking at her, she needs a, she needs a Father's blessing. And I'm there with my burrito supreme going, Father's blessing? What is that, right? I don't even know what that entails. And and I'm looking at her and says, she needs a father's blessing. So I'm not sure what to do. I, I go order more food because I want a little more you know, FaceTime with her to figure out, like, what is going on here? I order my food again, just trying to kind of make a connection with her. She's very uh, professional, formal with me, pleasant, but that's about it. I sit down. All right, we get up to leave. It's only been 30 minutes, right? We finished our meal. Again, still very few people in the place. And uh, I told my wife, I said, hey, you got to come with me i got to go speak to this girl. And I look at her name badge, Kira, with a K. I say, hey, Kira, just want you to know, uh, my wife and I have had an awesome time here today. You have made this time so pleasant. It, it, it exceeded our expectations. You know why? Because we, we watched you. We saw your work ethic. We saw how professional and responsible we were. You, you took care of our every need. You looked out for us. You looked out for this entire restaurant. You were the light of this entire restaurant. And we just want you to know, we are grateful. We are thankful. And I, I took out some money and uh, just went to shake her hand because she's very professional. She shook my hand through her food service glove. And I'm holding her hand. And I just held her hand. And I said, uh, you know, uh, Kira, I said, watching you work and take care of people, I just got to tell you, any father would be proud of you. At which point she looks down at the counter and she says, kind of under her breath, Oh, I wish it were so. I wish it were true. 
And I said, yeah, well, I said, I'm a father. I said, and I can tell you after watching you, I've only known it for 35 minutes and I'm proud of you. And I said, but more important than that, I said, there's a father in heaven who sees you. And he sees your work as significant. And he sees value in you. And he's proud of you. And he sent me in here, I think, just to tell you that. At which point, her eyes are now welling up, right? And I've got to tell you, I'm stealing myself. Because I'm going to lose it in the parking lot, but I am not going to lose it right here, right? And so she looks at me, and she st- her lower lip starts to quiver. And I just said, you just need to know. The Father in heaven sees you, says you're valuable, says you're his daughter, and says he's proud of you. And we're, we're blessed to have known you. I walk out. Real simple thing. Not much to it. My wife and I celebrated in the parking lot. Because you know why? Because God allowed us to see Kira through the eyes of Jesus and speak life into a young woman who probably didn't know she had value and worth, probably hadn't heard it much, probably hadn't felt it much. But you get to do that when you see people with the eyes of Jesus. A small thing, I realize. Awkward, yes. You know? Difficult, not really, as long as you get the courage to to step out and let God use you. But God wants to do that with us. For those who follow him, because when we see people like he sees people, everyone has value and worth. We get to speak it into them. When we see circumstances where we get to serve, we see it as opportunities for greatness, and we step in to serve. I'm longing for the day when we fight over the opportunity and chance to set up chairs for each other and tear down, and park cars, and take care of kids, when we fight over those options, because we realize those opportunities are opportunities for greatness, and we want to be great in God's kingdom. I look forward to the day when we see it that way. I'm going to have you stand with me. Because Jesus stands in front of anybody who claims to follow him, and he asked the exact same question of you as he did of James of John and a blind beggar, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? That's Jesus' question to you. And the only appropriate response I remind you is I want to see. I want to see. I want to see like you see. I want to see people with value and worth. I want to see circumstances that are ripe with purpose and significance. I want to see like you see, Jesus. It is a form of surrender, and I surrender my thinking and my agenda and my plans to you. You know what the international sign of surrender is? It's this. It says, I got nothing, and I need you, or I got nothing, and I'm yours. You tell me what to do. You determine what I should do, and I follow. And I'm here to tell you, That Jesus is standing in front of you and me saying, what do you want me to do for you? And I think it's time for some of us to surrender and say, I want to see like you see. I want to serve like you serve. I want to love like you love, Jesus. I want to ask some of you to do it. And I know it's weird, right? It's awkward to put your hands up and surrender. Here's why. Because you and I think surrender is losing. You and I see surrender as defeat. You and I see surrender as a dangerous thing because someone's going to abuse you and take advantage of you. But not when you surrender to Jesus. See, because surrendering to Jesus is a beautiful thing. 
It's an awesome thing. I'll remind you that surrendering to Jesus is, is different because you and I have never surrendered to one who loves us and has our best interest at heart, who doesn't look to hurt you but looks to heal you, who doesn't seek to oppress you but seeks to free you, who doesn't work you to death but refreshes you with living water. See, surrendering to Jesus is, is surrendering to one who doesn't steal your wealth, but he pays your debt. He paid the price that you could not pay. You and I just can't imagine surrendering to one who cares for you and wants to bless you. The one who's not cold and cruel, but who's gracious and compassionate. The one who doesn't drain you, but fills you. The one who doesn't take from you, but freely gives to you. See, surrendering to Jesus is where he doesn't look to make you a slave. He looks to adopt you as a son or a daughter. And he doesn't look to, he doesn't come to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes to give you life and life to the full. To those who surrender. To those who say, Jesus, I want to see. I'm going to ask you to, those of you who want to see like Jesus, as a demonstration to the king, the servant king, that you want to see like him, I'm going to ask you to put your hands up like this. You don't have to, but if you want to surrender and say, I want to see like you, Jesus, put them up. It's a sign to him to say, I'm serious, and I want to see like you see. He'll give you the gift, the ability to see like he sees. He promises it. He does it. He's a great king. God, we surrender today. We surrender and give you our lives. We give you our agenda, our plans, and say, have your way with us. We say, Jesus, we want to see like you see. We want to serve like you serve. We want to love like you love. We want to see people with, with value and purpose and significance in every serving situation, God. That's our desire. We want to see like you, Jesus. So would you help us to see we surrender and say, lead us, guide us, give us your eyes. And we thank you, Savior, for what you do. You change our life. You give us purpose and meaning, and we are grateful. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing this song together as we close.